Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Christmas, and uh, trust the Lord will use our time together now to just continue that Christmas, the time of focusing on our wonderful Savior. So, let me say a brief word of prayer. Our Lord and God, uh, please help me now to speak your word clearly, to help your people to set their eyes on you. God, please use this time to just grow us in our love and appreciation for you. Amen. Okay. So last week we looked at Isaiah's amazing, awe-inspiring vision of God when he was commissioned as a prophet. And we spent some time reflecting on the fact that the Gospel of John said that that very vision, that amazing vision that Isaiah had was actually... A vision of Jesus himself. You know, we think sometimes, well, hopefully often, of the fact that Jesus is God, but it doesn't always hit home to us just exactly what that means. And I just enjoy the fact that that particular awe-inspiring, incredible vision of God on his throne, that there's just that reminder of that, even that, that's Jesus. That's the one who came into this world. And my goal last week was to leave you amazed at God himself, and even more so at just how gracious he he is to be willing to become a man, be willing to become a baby, and enter into this world he created in order to save sinners like you and me. So last week we looked at a vision of Jesus on the throne before his incarnation, before he became a man. And this week we're looking at a vision of Jesus on the throne in heaven after his incarnation, after his time on earth. And that is from Revelation 5. So we just read from Revelation 4 and we're going to be looking at Revelation 5 shortly. So if last week our aim was to grow in amazement that Jesus was willing to come to earth and become man, this week our aim is to grow in appreciation for all that Jesus accomplished in his time on earth. As we're looking at this vision of the throne room of heaven, we're going to be asking ourselves, why is Jesus so uniquely worthy of worship? So we read from Revelation 4, and that's 
kind of the first half of this vision that the Apostle John has. And Revelation 5 is the second half of that. And that first half of the vision, as uh, God had read for us, has a lot of similarities with the vision we looked at last week, that Isaiah had some 800 years previously. God is on his throne, and he's being praised for his holiness, uh, which we'll remember from last week is both his sinlessness and purity, but it's also his utter uniqueness, his godness, you could say, as one separate and special in the truest sense, far more awesome than anything and everything else. And we see also that he is praised by these angelic beings and the elders, um, which uh, seems to be a a representative of of redeemed, saved human beings, um, that he's praised also for his power, for his eternality and unchangeableness, and for creating all things. And then that gets us to Revelation 5. So please follow along in your Bibles as we read from Revelation 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? To open the scroll and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fall down and worship. Quite an incredible passage, isn't it? Um, there's some things in there that are hard to understand, definitely, for sure. Uh, this is apocalyptic literature, and it's a vision, and so as a result, we should expect a lot of imagery. Um, so let's look at some of those images here and try and understand this a little better. So scrolls, of course, were the books of the ancient world. And sheets of papyrus paper were basically glued together and rolled up right into a scroll. A complete scroll, this is about as long as they could get, would be about 10 meters long. Sometimes books then would have to be broken up into separate volumes or parts because they were just too long to fit on one scroll. So, for example, a number of Bible scholars think that Luke and Acts would probably have just been one scroll if they could have all fit, if it could have all fit onto one scroll. Um, now, also, because of the way papyrus paper was made, the one side of the paper would be nice and smooth and, and easy to write on, but the other side would be quite bumpy and not as easy to write on. And so because of this, people tended to just write on one side of the scroll. One exception to this normal practice, though, would be if you had an official document, you know, maybe some sort of legal agreement, where it was very important that somebody knew that all the information they needed was, was here. So you're not looking at this document thinking, okay, is there another scroll? Is there a part two? Is there something missing? You know, it's clear that it's all there together on one scroll. Then sometimes that right on the other side, even if it was a bit bumpy, and not as neat, but then it's all together. Now, if a scroll contained important or private information, it might then be, after it's all rolled up, wrapped in another sheet of papyrus paper, and then take a, 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 some wax, and there where the, where the, where the paper meets, put the wax down, the hot wax down, and stamp it and seal it. And an especially important document, maybe sent by an especially important person, would have several seals, multiple seals. And when kings or rulers made proclamations of new laws or official plans that they had and they want to make some announcement, the scroll would be opened by a person in an official position and read publicly. And the way things were understood to work is that the contents of the scroll, that is the, the new laws, the, the, the new decrees described inside it, that those were understood to begin and come into play the moment when the seals were broken and the scroll was opened. Okay. Almost like you know, sometimes when people are officially opening a new building and they've got this ribbon and the, the, the scissors. Now when they cut the ribbon, the building's understood. Now it's open. So here then in verses 1 through 4 of Revelation 5, we see a scroll in God's hand. 
A scroll that is written on both sides, showing that all the information is there on the scroll. No detail is possibly in another document somewhere else. It's all there, it's complete, it's finished. And it's a scroll that's clearly very important. Sealed with seven seals. And that's impressive not just because of the number, but because uh, seven is used often in scripture and certainly in apocalyptic literature to, to signify completeness and perfection. And what is on this scroll? Well, it's God's plans for the world. His complete purposes for both judgment and blessing for the world. And uh, as you keep reading along in Revelation, basically, um, you see what's on that scroll unpacked through the rest of the book, and that wraps up the rest of human history. The history of this world. And so when they look high and low and can find nobody to open this scroll, it's like God's purposes are stuck. That's why John's crying. He's crying not because he's just super curious and wants wants to wants to know what's going on. He's, he's, he's crying because God's decrees are not going to be put into action. He's crying because it's like there's no hope. To help us especially appreciate this passage more fully. I want us to take some time to think a little bit about the storyline of Scripture, the storyline of our world. We talked some time last Sunday about the glory of God seen in creation. In the beginning, God made everything so, so good. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve would have experienced all the beauty and wonder we can see and enjoy in creation today, but so, so much better. More and brighter colors, even more delicious flavors, even more beautiful music and bird calls and other sounds of nature. They would have had human bodies that were not tainted by sin. And because of that, they could have seen and smelt and tasted better. They could run and climb and jump better. Their minds were brighter and sharper than ours are today. The animals with them in the garden would not have feared man and were not dangerous to man. They would have submitted to man according to God's plan, seeing man as God's appointed steward and vice-regent, having dominion of the world under his ultimate authority. So Adam and Eve were able to enjoy all the animals that God created, up close and without concern. Tigers and elephants and bears and crocodiles and eagles. There was no sickness, there was no pain, there was no poverty. There was no relational strife or sadness of any sort. There was no death, no goodbyes. Work existed, but it was rewarding and a joy. The ground, as God had created it, was submissive to man's working it rather than fighting against him. There was no sin and guilt, just pure and wholesome desires. And most importantly, God walked with man. 
and we enjoyed his closeness and relationship. There was no sin to alienate us from him, just a relationship of closeness and awe. And then came the fall. Satan took on the form of the snake and deceived Eve into breaking the one commandment God had given them. She ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sin entered the world and with it brokenness and evils of every sort. Adam and Eve began to bicker and fight. They began to blame each other and selfishly think only of justifying and defending themselves. The perfect relational harmony they enjoyed was destroyed. Guilt and shame and fear entered the world, weighing Adam and Eve down and robbing them of joy. The God they had enjoyed walking with, they now felt a need to hide from. Work became hard and unpleasant. Thorns and thistles appeared and the ground became difficult to work. Pain, sickness, death entered the world. All of God's glorious creation was marred to at least some extent. Nothing was quite as colorful, quite as delicious, quite as beautiful. Everything began to die. And Adam and Eve had to leave this beautiful garden. And worse, they had to leave God's presence, alienated from Him by their sin. Was this the way things would be forever? Was there any hope? See, that's why John weeps in verse 4. He's weeping because God had a plan to turn this all around. But if the scroll is not opened, how's that plan going to unfold? If no one can open the scroll to set God's purposes for judgment and blessing in motion, then we're stuck outside of Eden, so to speak. We're stuck with sin and pain and sadness. There can be no restoration. There can be no salvation, no reconciliation with God, and no true holistic healing between people groups who hate each other. No heavens, no new heavens and new earth. Try and feel that for a moment. Let it really hit home. Because it highlights then just how wonderful it is that one was found who is worthy to open the scroll and to set God's purposes into play. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So, you know, Lion of the tribe of Judah, Root of David, you may recognize these as prophetic titles referring to the Messiah, to Jesus, the promised one, who God would send to make all things right. So firstly, then, as we think, why is Jesus uniquely worthy of our worship? Firstly, because he is the only one 
worthy to open the scroll. He is the only one worthy to open the scroll. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth can do it. It all hinges on Him. There's no gospel without Jesus. I know that word means good news. There is no good news without Jesus. There is no hope without Jesus. Who else lived a perfectly sinless life? Who else would be able to pay the price for our sins? No one. Anyone else would need to die to pay for their own sins. The wages of sin is death, and everyone has sinned except Jesus. Who else lived a life perfect, a life, of, a perfect life of obedience, fulfilling all righteousness, so that they can not only cancel the debt we owe for our sin, but offer us the rewards they have earned for a life perfectly pleasing to God in every way. No one. No one. See, and this is what we need, brothers and sisters. We don't just need our sin cancelled. We need a Jesus to obey God in absolutely every area of life. This is why he had to live on this earth for 33 years. This is why he couldn't just show up and go to the cross the day he arrived. He fulfilled all righteousness so that he could offer to us not just a clean slate, but he could offer to us a 101% grade so that when God looks at our lives, he's fully, fully pleased. The book of Romans wrestles with this question, basically, of how can a holy and just God save us? You know, we often tend to think about it from the other, from the other side, right? Which is, you know, we think, well, you know, uh, how can God judge us? And the Bible is more troubled, recognizes more of a more of a problem with the opposite way of viewing it. How can a good and just God let guilty sinners go free? How can a good and just God not only not send us to hell, but welcome us into His presence, give us the reward of an eternity spent with Him? How can he do that and still be good and still be just? And the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. The way the book of Romans puts it is that this allows our God to be both just and the justifier. Right? Because you know what happens is when he looks at us and he sees Jesus, our sins are paid for. He's not just ignoring them, sweeping them under the carpet. Our sins are paid for. And the, the, the rewards we receive are rewards that we do deserve in Jesus because Jesus deserved them fully. And that allows Him to be perfectly just even as He's being merciful and gracious and giving us things that we personally don't deserve. Far from it. In fact, we, we, we deserve the opposite. We deserve His wrath and punishment. There's only one true hero in the Bible. There's only one true hero in all of history. 
Moses could not have opened the scroll. David could not have. Isaiah could not have. John the Baptist could not have. Peter could not have. Paul could not have. John Calvin could not have. Charles Spurgeon could not have. Pick your favorite preacher. Pick your favorite theologian. Pick your favorite missionary hero. They were not worthy to open the scroll. Only Jesus is worthy. And because Jesus fulfilled the mission God gave him, all of God's purposes for punishing the wicked and saving and blessing the lost can come to pass. All God's purposes for justice and mercy. All God's purposes to show his incredible wisdom and put his lavish grace on display. Look down at verse 6 and following. There's some more imagery there for us to think through together. So this passage talks about four living creatures, and we saw those also in chapter 4, as Garnet was reading. And these are angelic beings of sorts. Um, And I think there's good reason to believe that these are actually the the same angelic beings that we saw in uh, Isaiah's vision last week, the seraphim. Um, they seem to be serving much the same purpose around the throne of God and, and singing the same or very similar uh, content, songs of praise constantly to God. And this passage also talks about 24 elders uh, who, as I mentioned earlier, I think there's good reason to believe are representative of saved, redeemed uh, mankind. And both the elders and the living creatures here are around the throne of God and are praising Him. And one of those elders points John, the Apostle John, points his attention to, to this Lamb. And now we've, we've already seen that this Lamb is described as, the, as, is described as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But now he's, he's both a Lion and a Lamb. And again, with, with, with this sort of literature... Uh, there's a lot of symbolism, there's a lot of imagery. So we shouldn't be thinking about this primarily in terms of what this lamb looked like, but rather to emphasize his lamb-like qualities. Whatever it was about this being, John was struck with this. Ah, it's, it's like, it's a, it's a lamb that, that has been slain. That's, that's clear to John. It has been sacrificed and the passage also says this lamb had seven horns and seven eyes and um, just seems to be this strange strange imagery to me definitely um, but just reading around different commentators there's, there's good reason to believe there's a lot of consensus uh, that, that when you see horns in this sort of literature apocalyptic literature horns are representative of power and royalty and then eyes are representative of seeing and knowing everything perfectly so especially when there's an emphasis on so many eyes and again that number seven that number of perfection and completeness so this is a lamb that's been slain but it's also a royal lamb a powerful lamb a lamb that knows and sees everything. And the seven spirits, that language in Revelation seems to be 
reference not to, to not really to multiple spirits, but actually again to the Holy Spirit and just again his perfection and completeness. So secondly then, why is Jesus uniquely worthy of our worship? Because of his sacrifice. Because of his sacrifice. Because of what he suffered for us. The words used here are vivid. Jesus was slain. He was slaughtered. He was the sacrificial lamb who died for us. Um, when I took a Life of Christ class in college, one of the professors, uh, a guest professor, came in and explained to us how lambs were actually sacrificed as a part of the sacrificial system. And there's just so much um, intentionality about how that's done to convey the fact that, that, that this lamb is dying for you. It's dying in your place. When the book of Philippians speaks of Jesus being obedient to the point of death, it says that he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And it's for good reason that, that Philippians emphasizes that, because crucifixion was designed by the Romans to be as cruel as possible as painful and torturous as possible, as humiliating as possible. Jesus was whipped, he was beaten. He had a crown of thorns forced down onto his head. He was mocked, he was spat on, he was ridiculed. He had nails driven through his hands and his feet. He was lifted high on a cross in a place where passers-by could see him easily. And he was likely naked or almost so as he hung there on the cross. And the point was to make a point. Don't cross the rulers. This is what happens to you. And the point was that he could be as jeered and mocked as possible in that, in that public place. And that it would be as embarrassing and as shameful as possible. And as many, as, as many people as possible could see that shame. The death was slow and awful. Essentially from crucifixion, one slowly drowns from the buildup of fluids in your lungs. So if you, your arms are out like this and all your weight is on your wrists, basically it becomes harder and harder to breathe. And so you've got this dynamic where the person on the cross then would try and relieve the strain on their lungs, try and make it easier for them to breathe. They'll try and do that by pushing up on their feet so that they can stand up more and put, put their weight on their legs. But now, of course, if you've got a nail through your feet, then that means now you're putting all, all, all the weight of your body now on that nail. And then that becomes excruciating pain. So you can just barely hold yourself up long enough to get a breath and then you drop down again. And eventually you get to the point where you can't do it anymore. And I try, but you just can't. The pain is too much, you're just too weak, and you suffocate and die. 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who was slaughtered for us. Thirdly, He is worthy of worship because He bought people for God. In other words, He's worthy because of what He accomplished. He suffered much for us and He accomplished much for us. Bought us from what? What is from what? Well, the wages of sin is death. There was a price we owed for our sin, and Jesus paid it all. Hell no longer awaits those who have put their faith in Jesus, no matter how much sin they have in their life. Once their faith is in Jesus, that sin is paid for and covered in full. We've been rescued from eternal suffering. We've been rescued from eternal separation from God. And Jesus brought us for God. That's the language here. Jesus brought us for God. And this has some weighty implications. These passages like Titus 2 and 1 Peter 2 tell us, we are God's possession. We belong to Him. As 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price, and we must glorify God with our bodies, with our lives. It's also amazing in its graciousness that God, Jesus bought us for God. If you look at verse 10, it says there, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. What does God intend for his people who are his possession? For us to be priests, for us to be people who represent him to others. And for us to rule and reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. It's good to have a God like that as your master. Why is Jesus worthy of our worship? Fourthly, because the salvation he provides overcomes every obstacle and extends to every people. This passage tells us that Jesus purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this is wonderful when we think about extent, the extent of what he's accomplished. That there will be people praising God from eternity, for all eternity, from every corner of the world. From jungles and islands and deserts, from mountains and icy regions. There will be Arabs and there will be Eskimos. There will be Pacific Islanders and there will be people from western cities. There will be... Pygmies from the jungles of the Congo. Every corner of the earth. The gospel will go to all of them and some will be saved from every place where people are to be found. The gospel will also overcome every hurdle. Think of it. When we talk here about every nation... That means that borders will need to be crossed, and sometimes even very creatively. 
we, I know of some churches with missionaries in India, and the only way they can send these missionaries to India is if these missionaries start legitimate money-making businesses in India that they can prove to the Indian government are genuine businesses that make a profit. That's the only way they're allowed to be in the country. And why are they doing all that? They're doing all that so that they can reach different peoples who haven't yet heard about Jesus with the gospel. It means that God will find a way to save people from enclosed countries that are committed to keeping Christianity out or even to to imprisoning or, or killing Christians. God will save people from wealthy and powerful nations and He will save people from poor and overlooked nations. Nations that you might not even know exist. God will save people from every tribe. That means that the hard work required to reach a tiny little isolated tribe on the top of such and such mountain or on the other side of, of this awful swamp in this deep valley and uh, you know all these natural hazards and, and they're just, oh, we know they're over there, but who interacts with them? They're just so isolated. The gospel's going to them too, and at least some from that tribe, those tribes will be saved. God will save people from every language. That, that means the hard work of learning new languages and translating the Bible so that the gospel can be shared hundreds and hundreds of times over. And this is happening through Christian history. It's happening right now. In all, in, in the Middle East, it's happening. Some friends of mine are doing it in, in, in the jungles of Cameroon. Uh, there's, there's people from Grace Fellowship uh, Church in Pretoria who are doing it in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. God is working this out, taking His gospel to every people. from every skin color and ethnicity, which means that prejudices and significant historical hatred and hurdles is overcome. The gospels for the educated and uneducated, the able-bodied, the disabled, it's for the wealthy and the poor, it's for the prestigious and for the overlooked and forgotten. Peoples from this full spectrum will be saved and God will be glorified forever for his wonderful, gracious plan of salvation. Lastly, why is Jesus so worthy of our worship? Because of his commitment to glorify God the Father. Because of his commitment to glorify God the Father. So the book of Hebrews tells us to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He, after... Hebrews 11 gives us multiple examples of people living by faith. Jesus is the prime example. Right? And he was able to endure the cross because he looked ahead. He looked ahead to the reward. He lived a perfect life of faith. In Matthew 26, we see that Jesus, as God, very God, here on earth, could certainly have saved himself from the cross. Matthew 26, verse 51 says, One of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. 
Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. And in verse 53, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Alright, this is, remember we saw last week, Jesus is the Lord of hosts. Verse 54, But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? As Jesus was facing the cross, the awfulness of what he was about to endure hit home. And we see this in a number of different places. We see it as he's praying to God. In Gethsemane. In John 12, 27 and 28, says this. He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. Not my will, but yours be done. He chose to go to the cross so that God would be glorified. And he accomplished exactly that. The book of Revelation, very rightly so, is full of worship to Jesus himself. Full of, 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 of explanation for why Jesus himself is so worthy for what he's done for us. But it is also full of praise to God the Father for his amazing plan of salvation. Further on in Revelation 5 verse 13, towards the, end, the very end of the chapter, it says, yeah, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Right? Jesus lived his life here on earth seeking to glorify the Father in everything. And because of what Jesus accomplished here on earth, forever and ever, people from every purchased for God the Father from every corner of the globe, from every people group, will be worshipping God the Father forever and ever and ever for His plan, His gracious, gracious plan of salvation. Why is Jesus uniquely worthy of worship? Because He's the only one worthy to open the scroll. Because of His sacrifice, because of what He suffered. Because he purchased people for God, because of what he accomplished for us. And because his salvation overcomes every obstacle and extends to every people group. And because of his commitment to glorify God the Father. If you take one thing away from the sermon, what do I want to leave you with? I want to leave you with a deeper sense of Jesus' unique worthiness. The entire storyline of the Bible and indeed of all history depends on him and his fulfilling the mission God gave to him. There's no gospel without Jesus. There's no good news without Jesus. Without him there is no hope. But because of him, because he prevailed, there is every reason for hope.
every reason for confidence in a wonderful, glorious future, secured for us through his death and resurrection. If you are not a Christian, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, I want to tell you very, (laughs) uh, very bluntly, there is no other way to be saved. There is no other possible way to be saved. Come to Jesus. Embrace what he did on the cross and find salvation. And if you are a Christian, brothers and sisters, let's live for him. Tell others about him and worship him with all of our lives as the only one who is worthy. Amen. Thank you. Lord and God, please help us to live as we should with full confidence in you and all that you've accomplished for us and with just hearts that are full and overflowing and passionate to live for you and glorify you in all of life because you are worthy. You are worthy. Amen.